This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Hey, all that like grad school stuff, not my problem anymore. I love the show so much. I have a question that might be good. It might not be. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we open the mailbag to answer your questions about applications, teaching experience, and more. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 167. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy December, Dan. It is getting so cold. I do not like it. Isn't it hard to believe that as long as 2020 seemed, now we have not only gotten through 2020, but now 2021 is almost over too. Isn't that hard to believe? That is a little bit hard to believe. Things are slowly getting back to normal. And so maybe the time is passing. You know what? Actually, I I think this is what it is. I don't know if you've experienced this. The more similar your days are, the faster time goes. Like when you go on vacation and it's all new and it's a new place, it it feels like the days are very long and exciting. But when you get up every day, walk upstairs (laughs) to your computer desk, sit there all day, come back downstairs. I, I don't know. For me, the time has gone fast because it's just, it all blends together. The days melt away. Uh, I, in my mind, it's similar to being in grad school. I can remember after classes and qualifying exams, those last three years or so, my PhD was almost like you described, Dan. There were like none of these uh, markers of the passage of time. It was just get up, come into lab, do some experiments, analyze some data, go home, come into lab. <laughs> like, Even weekends, it didn't matter. probably. The season, yeah, the day, the season uh, did not, the end of semesters, none of that seemed to matter, and the time just went quickly. And you certainly weren't taking vacations. No, you're like, oh, I've been here five years. Wow, I should try to get out of here. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> well, Dan. With that inspiring commentary. We are going to uh, do something fun. Uh, it is the the season of, of holidays and celebrations. And so we are going to actually, through the magic of editing, transport ourselves away from the recording studio and into a holiday party where we pulled away from the festivities to sample a special uh, ethanol treat. All right. Hey, Dan, we are in your backyard. You can hear cars going by. <laughs> hear the cars going by. We have a couple glasses in front of us here for a special beer segment, and I'm really excited about this. So, a few weeks back, we had the Dunkin' Pumpkin beer, which was decidedly not good. Pretty universally panned, yes. Uh, but beyond that, you know, we've been doing the show many years now, Dan, and every fall we've tried a sampling of pumpkin beers, and I'm not sure we've found one we like yet. I would... I would say we definitely have not found one we liked yet. We, we found a bunch that were really bad and some that were tolerable, but nothing that was great. Well, through the years, we've learned a lot from our listeners, and I'm thankful for that. And so maybe we'll have a breakthrough here. So we got an email from uh, Philip, and Philip reached out and said, My first winter in Portland, I went to a bar that had pumpkin beer on tap. I asked the bartender how it was, and they said that no pumpkin beer is very good. 
<laughs> Fact check, true. <laughs> so that makes me at least feel, I feel validated. I feel heard. Uh, however, uh, the bartender went on and said, uh, no, pumpkin beer is good, but if you mix it half and half with a hard cider, then most pumpkin beers are very good. This is this is kind of like straw into gold. This is a transformative <laughs> process. It's not just that it takes the edge off the bad. He's saying it's very good. He's a very good. He went from not good to very good. So we're okay. going to try this. Well, you brought the... This is another collaboration. You brought a <laughs> pumpkin. I did. Southern from, Tier Brewing Pumpkin. Which I think we've tried before. I think we have. I think it's we have. It's an imperial pumpkin. An imperial pumpkin ale, and the tagline is pumpkin pie in a glass. Okay, we're going to sample this with, with no additives, no adulteration. Because this may be great on its own. Who knows? This would be the first. Okay, let's try. It's like sweet and bitter. It's really bizarre. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a pumpkin ale. I get the spices. I get the pumpkininess, but I also get that that tart acidity that, for me, is characteristic of a pumpkin beer that I don't like. This is the second time I've gotten like a bubblegum flavor out of one of these. There's something wrong with There's my brain. There's something in there. Yeah, no, I, I can see what you're saying, Dan. <laughs> There's some kind of aldehyde Something's going flavor. On. Um, all right, let's just, you know, to do the real experiment, though, before we mix these, uh, we also have what you provided, Dan. Here. Yeah, this is something that somebody brought over to Thanksgiving dinner and left in my fridge. This is the Stella Artois Cider, spelled C-I-D-R-E, the European-style cider, C-I-D-E-R. And, and just so we're clear, uh, we're only we're recording this on December the twelfth, so we're only a couple weeks past Thanksgiving. So oh, this is fine. a fresh, fresh cider. Right, yeah, I didn't say what year the Thanksgiving <laughs> was. Well, let's try the cider and see what they do. You like cider normally? Uh yeah, I like cider. All right. Yeah, I'm lukewarm on cider too, but you know we'll see. Okay, so I was curious. You know, I tend to like a dry cider. This is not a dry cider. It is not particularly dry, but I wouldn't call it cloyingly sweet either. It's somewhere in the middle to me. Tastes like apple juice. Yeah, my kids would drink this. They shouldn't. <laughs> they shouldn't. <laughs> All right, so the the pumpkin beer, uh, and a lot of people like pumpkin. Well, it keeps coming How out year after year, so I assume that they're selling bottles of this. All right, so we, we don't necessarily like the pumpkin, and I don't necessarily love the cider, but it is, <laughs> is a good representation. This is going to be a crash and burn, isn't it? This is going <laughs> to be terrible. This is a good representation of it. It's not a bad cider. It is... It is the cider. Okay, right. the secret is half and half. So we start start pouring so we can get the ratios correct. Okay, I hope that when we add the other one, you get a puff of smoke okay. and some swirls so I would say of color. These glasses look to be about half full of pumpkin now, right? Or half empty, depending on your perspective. <laughs> All right, now I'm going to just top this up with the cider. All right. Turn purple, now violet. Now. And I'm I'm going slightly light on the cider because I just feel like it said needs half to be, and half. Know, Josh, follow the rules. This okay, is what I good. did in grad school. The uh, protocol said one thing. I was like, well, right, do you think we need to mix this or you know in no, a I bar bet, setting? He's not going to mix. It's going to be mixed just by the, the cheers. Point. All right, You're cheers. Cheating. I'll be damned. It doesn't taste like either one. Um, it tastes more like the cider. It tastes more like the cider. It really just watered down the pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> I would, it, for me. The mixture of these two beverages is better than each individual beverage. Yeah, it's interesting. Take a, take a sip of your plain cider again because it is more tart than the combined product, which is weird because you'd think that adding beer to it wouldn't kill that sourness. So, so this, for me, it cuts the sweetness of the cider, but it also cuts the, the tartness of the pumpkin beer. 
but I'm still, I feel like I'm actually getting, you know what this reminds me of, Dan? White Claw. <laughs> <laughs> like like cinnamon apples, like I'm getting yeah. the apples, but now those spices that were in the pumpkin beer are coming through more clearly for me now with this mixture. It is better. I think it is better. I don't know why you would still need to produce a pumpkin ale just for this, but it is decidedly better to me than the pumpkin was by itself. 100%. Like I could I would more happily drink this glass in front of me of this mixture than I would if I poured a full glass of the pumpkin on its own. So now I'm looking forward to next year when <laughs> the pumpkin beer will have to be paired with some cider and we're going to have to get creative with it. So thank you to Philip. Yeah, Philip, thank you. Uh, this was a rousing success. And I know we're getting towards the end of the fall season, but if you can track down more pumpkin beer in your store and you can always find some cider. Bring it to your holiday party. Basically, go to the dumpster behind the grocery <laughs> store. There will be some pumpkin beer in there, and you can just go buy a cider. And if you actually like pumpkin beer, I have this hypothesis that it's sort of like pumpkin spice. People are nostalgic for it, and so you go to the grocery store for the first time in like September, and you see like the orange color and the pumpkin name. Seasonal. It's like and you the buy Christmas it lights. for nostalgia yeah. reasons. But if you actually like it, if you've bought two different packs of pumpkin like you drank all the first six pack and then you went back for more i'd love to know that or you stock up on pumpkin beer <laughs> yeah, i guess so. right to us and let us know all right dan that was fun we had a little party interjection there in the show magic of television or whatever this is i do really love when listeners give us ethanol suggestions and advice i would love more of that yeah absolutely josh before we get into our mailbag today I uh, definitely want to take the moment to thank Promega. It's that time of year when many of us realize graduation is right around the corner. Whether you're continuing in your academic journey or looking for opportunities outside of academia, make sure you have the tools and skills you need to find the right next step. From job interviews to individual development plans, the Promega Student Resource Center is your go-to guide to navigating those tough decisions. Visit promega.com slash hellophd to learn more. Also, we'd love to thank our friends at BioBox. Are you spending months learning to use bioinformatic tools? Leverage the BioBox platform to process, analyze, and explore your genomic data without learning how to code. Accelerate your research and sign up for your 30-day free trial at biobox.io. All right, Dan, let's dip into the mailbag. All right, Josh, our first note comes from Kaylee. She writes, I just wanted to send an email to thank you for all your hard work you've put into creating Hello PhD over the years. I can't express in words how much this podcast has meant to me. It has helped me through supervisor problems, lab isolation, career path questions, and so many other graduate school struggles. Does any of those sound familiar to you, Josh? Everyone. I think the biggest impact has been on helping me feel less alone and showing me that the difficulties I have experienced are common for many graduate students. Listening to this podcast while driving to the lab, performing experiments, or working with animals was often one of the best parts of my day. She goes on to say, one of the biggest ways that Hello PhD has helped me has been in making me reevaluate the default of staying in academia. In fact, I just received job offers to move to a position as an R&D scientist in the biotechnology industry, which I will be starting in the new year. Since I may not listen to Hello PhD as religiously in the future, I just wanted to let you both know how much this podcast has helped me survive graduate school. Thank you again for all the work you put into helping graduate students like me. 
Josh, this is so exciting to me. Kaylee has graduated. Can you believe <laughs> students actually make it through? Students make it through, and there are very few things as exciting as getting that first job, that first quote-unquote real job after graduate school. And, you know, I can remember this for me. Maybe you remember this too, Dan. But that first day you walk into that non-training position at your job and you just feel different. And, you know, I think it equally feels good because hopefully you're doing some work that, that you're excited about, but also, hey, all that like grad school stuff, not my problem anymore. <laughs> exactly. For some people, Josh, that first job is their first time not in school, right? Not in, in an academic setting or for Kaylee, she's going into a biotechnology company. This is maybe her first time working at a company like that and not being a research tech in an academic lab or something like that. So it is a big transition, but I know she's going to be successful. I'm really excited for her. Absolutely. And we say this all the time, Dan, but you know, hearing Kaylee talk about her excitement at this new new position that she has, this is where it's just so important to constantly remind yourself of why you're in graduate school in the first place. And that's because it's preparing you and setting you up for these jobs, these exciting jobs and careers after your training is done. I did want to point out, too, that, that Kaylee actually was a guest on Hello PhD all the way back in December 2019, which we also refer to as the before times. Um, that <laughs> was right. actually very, that was towards the end of the before times, <laughs> like the very, uh, the very tale of those times. Uh, but this was back in episode 125, where she talked about uh, her experience working at a research institute setting, which is kind of a little bit of a different uh, academic setting. So if you want to hear more about Kaylee and as a trainee, you can go back and listen to episode 125. And if you'd like to graduate within two years, come on the Hello PhD podcast. We are one for one. <laughs> That's right. You know, Dan, more broadly, though, one of the things I want to talk a little bit about was something that, that she said uh, we helped her to, to realize and understand and remember that I think is really important, and that is doing your PhD, um, there's not a default. There's not a default career path with a PhD. There was at one time. I mean, she's describing a real sentiment in academia for a lot of people that, you know, it has changed a little bit from when we were in school where having careers in other spaces in, in industry or in um, nonprofits or government agencies is more normal. But I still think there is a default that she's talking about for doing a postdoc. Can you, do you still see that happening? I see that happening less and less. And I think part of that is the fact that that funding agencies have started being more vocal and proactive about the many career paths and options that are available right after graduate school. Um, but also institutions themselves, I think, are having a more realistic viewpoint on what students can do once they leave graduate school. You know, I was fortunate to work for a long time at an institution um, and in a graduate education office that valued and promoted career exploration and professional development of students. And one thing that was easy for me to forget was that this wasn't necessarily always the case in academia as a whole. And I can remember one time I went to visit another institution. I was, I was giving a talk there. And as part of my visit, I met with graduate students and one of the questions that, that came up from one of the students over lunch was, 
you know, if I'm interested in a career in industry, how as a graduate student might I explore those careers? And, you know, where my brain immediately went based on my experiences at my own institution where, oh, well, you should seek out workshops and career panels where <laughs> all the things that you've hosted over the yeah, years. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, there's probably a student group that is you know, made up of students who are interested in careers in industry. And then I realized like, oh, okay, well, there are still a lot of places where graduate students who are in these academic programs, they're in their lab, they're doing their research, and there's really not a lot of other information or opportunities offered to them outside of that. And so it really takes a lot of creativity and time and energy to do that career exploration while also doing your graduate training. And so there are definitely programs still in a lot of ways have some way to go. And, you know, even even programs that might offer or be more open to these other career paths besides academia, I think students can still sometimes have this feeling that, well, there might be these other career paths but the best path, the one true path, the one that's yeah. going to somehow you please my advisor the most is if I go on and start my own lab in academia. Uh, but you know, the reality is, Dan, even back when we were in grad school, no one else was telling us about careers <laughs> besides academia, really, or, or really about careers at all. But if you think about the other students who were in our program with us, even back in those days, how many of those are running their own lab at academic institutions now? Very few. So the reality is we were all going That's into true. all these other career paths anyway. It's just we didn't have a lot of support. And I think we had a lot of anxiety and a lot of effort expended trying to figure out what those paths were after we graduated. Yeah, people I graduated with are scientific writers for like the marketing department of a biotech company. There's somebody that's doing... Uh, clinical research management. So lots and lots of different things. And these people were successful in lab in grad school. They weren't, it wasn't like me where <laughs> everything <laughs> failed and then they defaulted out of the system. You know, they, they had success in their work, but these this is what they wanted to pursue. It was a different style of career. And I think that makes total sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I guess the thing I want to make sure is, is just clear that we reiterate here once again, as inspired by, by Kaylee's message that, that she sent to us, is that if you're a grad student now, there are lots of different things you can do with that. And I think that's one of the big advantages of doing your PhD in a science field is there's so many different directions you could go depending on your own interests and values and, and just what you want um, out of your life and out of your career professionally. Yeah, it's your life. Make it something you are going to enjoy, not something your PI would be proud of. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Dan, I think we have another email. This one comes from Judith. She writes, as a first-generation college student who is trying to pursue a PhD in neuroscience, I found your podcast to be the best resource for anything PhD, especially applications. So thank you very much. For context, she's a senior in college, and she was going to apply for grad school this year. She's reaching, she reached out to us because a lot of things have gone wrong in that application process, and she wants to know uh, what to do next. So I'm going to read you a couple of her bullet points, some things that she thinks are barriers to applying to graduate school this year. And uh, we'll just go through them one by one, if that's all right. Sure. So the first issue is she had a research experience lined up at her college, and she was partway into the semester when the PI decided she couldn't continue doing it because he had a lot going on. 
Um, so now she doesn't have any research experience at the college level. Is deal breaker? If we're if we're talking about, she mentioned pursuing a PhD in neuroscience, and one thing that's going to be really critical, and I think we've talked about this uh, in in multiple episodes before when we talk about applying to grad school. For research-intensive graduate programs, research experience coming in is really a non-negotiable. You know, that is really the one thing that, for most programs at least, you're going to have to have. And and the reason is, this is actually not a bad thing. I think this is a great thing because, as you know, Dan, <laughs> most of what you're doing in grad school is you're coming into lab, you're doing research day in and day out. And so not only do programs want to know that you have sort of the interest and aptitude to do research, it's also important for you to really understand, do I like doing this? Is this something I want to do? And I think it's important to know that coming into grad school. So I would say that could be a deal breaker, you know, if, and, and I wouldn't even, I don't think I would even frame it as a deal breaker. I think I would frame it if you have this idea that you might want to go get your PhD in, in a scientific research field, but you haven't had a chance to do research yet. You really owe it to yourself, not just to be more competitive for graduate school, but to explore research as a thing to do to see if that really kind of lights you on fire. You're like, yes, I definitely want to do more of this. I want to pursue this. Um, Or you may decide it's not for you, but I think you have to get that experience to know that. Yeah, I will double, triple second that. Uh, As somebody who went to grad school right after my senior year of college, with some research experiences as an undergrad, but not enough. I spent five years being pretty miserable, as <laughs> is famous, uh, as I've talked about a lot on the show. But I think if I had taken a little bit more time, done that research, I may have avoided those five years of feeling miserable. It's a long time, and, and it's very easy to feel trapped in that decision that you made to go to grad school. So um, I agree, not a deal breaker, but certainly a reason to consider delaying a little bit. Let me read you the second point. And it's related, but different. So she says her college research experience was, uh, she had some in a previous summer. The program she was part of was virtual. um, And she reached out to the PI for a letter of recommendation, but got no response. And she emailed the postdoc who actually mentored her over the summer. Um, The postdoc said, write your own letter and the postdoc could sign it. Does it matter that it's a postdoc signing it and not the PI? Because the PI would not be able to put their signature on it. Yeah, you know, I think this is not an ideal situation. Um, I think what admissions committees most like to see is they like to see letters that are by the research advisors themselves, the, the, the faculty who run the lab. And, you know, this situation that, that she's describing is one that happens from time to time, where especially if you were um, an undergrad who was very temporary in the lab, like a summer research program, uh, where you maybe only were there for a couple months, you maybe didn't have a lot of opportunity to interact directly with the faculty members. So, you know, so in that situation, it's probably to your benefit that the person who interacted with you the most would be the one writing your letter. And so in those cases, the best case scenario is to have that postdoc or senior grad student write the letter, but have the advisor sign it or co-sign it. Now, it sounds like here the PI signature is not an option for for whatever reason. And even the postdoc seems a little bit hesitant to put in much effort to write the letter as well. You know, what that says to me is maybe, you know, you mentioned this was a virtual experience. So 
maybe the postdoc also feels with just that virtual interaction that they may not feel like they have enough information to really write a detailed letter. So they're willing to be supportive. But, um, you know, it's sounding to me like really going back to what we discussed before, um, while this experience was good and it seems like gave you a taste of research and has motivated you to really want to pursue that more, really this alone is probably not enough um, to have you prepared for graduate school. Did you, you know, we did an episode on how the pandemic was going to change the application process and about how uh, admissions committees were going to have to look at and accept the fact that huge swaths of time were basically lost to students who couldn't be in lab in research experiences. And I wonder, Josh, have you seen any of that flexibility um, through the admissions process where people are, maybe they're having some virtual experiences, but not in the lab? And is that impacting decisions? Uh, certainly, yes. I mean, there were many, many applicants last year, and I imagine there will still be some this year, who mentioned just like, uh, you know, just like Judith mentioned, you know, I was in this, I'd gotten into the summer research program and ended up being virtual, or my university shut down. And so we were sent home and we actually couldn't work physically in the lab. However, I think what, what you did see is that there still are quite a few applica- applicants out there who were already working in research. As, well, one of two things. They either were already working in research as a job, so like as a technician, as a postback scholar, as some kind of in some kind of full-time capacity. And so during the pandemic, those individuals, besides a temporary shutdown in the first maybe two or three months of the pandemic, for the most part, you know, went back to work with some kinds of precautions and safety measures in place. And and we interviewed some of those folks on the show, Dan, um, in the earlier days of the pandemic. Exactly. And so individuals like that who still were participating in full-time research kind of rose to the top, I think. Um, or individuals who had been involved in research for a longer period of time during their undergrad that maybe preceded the pandemic. So, so I think while there was flexibility, there still would be hesitancy for an individual who only had a virtual research experience. Makes, makes sense. So, so these are two points in favor of Judith continuing on a little bit uh, to get more experience. Let me give you point number three. Uh, she mentions a, a 2.8 GPA. Uh, as she encounters some difficulties while in college. How big is the GPA factoring into the admissions process? So GPA becomes less and less important the farther it is in the rearview mirror. So if you are coming right out of undergrad, you probably have less experience and your undergraduate transcript is probably going to carry a little more weight than it would if you had been out working in research for four or five years. So let's say you had worked in a lab as a technician for three years, full time, you'd been doing great work there, maybe you got your name on a paper. Oh, but by the way, you had a 2.8 GPA three or four years ago when you were an undergrad. That's going to be less of a big deal because you have these other experiences that are going to carry more weight. You know, that being said, there is research that's out there, uh, some of which I was part of, <laughs> to put in a personal plug, that shows that undergraduate GPA is really not a good predictor of how well students do in graduate school. I think it's important if you have a, a GPA that's below the average of programs you're targeting, that you just be upfront about that on your application. And we've discussed this in previous episodes before. Um, you know, a lower GPA is not a 
impenetrable barrier that will keep you out of grad school. Um, but it's also something they're going to look at, especially if some of those lower grades were in science courses. So it's going to be important you spend a little bit of time thinking about, well, why did I maybe get some of those lower grades? Maybe you were working a job. Maybe you were sick or had a family member you had to care for. Um, you know, you might want to mention that in your personal statement. You don't need to go in excruciating detail, um, but just show, just acknowledge that you recognize your GPA is a little bit lower. But what did you learn from that, and how have you moved forward, and how does that, how is that not indicative of you as a researcher? And by the way, that's also where I think it can be good. Once you get into a lab and you're doing full time research, let's say as a technician or a postback scholar or something like that. That kind of, I don't think you have to lead with it, but once you get going in the lab and things are going well and your advisor is going to be writing you recommendation letters, you know, maybe be open with them that, you know, hey, my, I know my GPA is probably a weak point in my application. Can you address that in your letter and say, yeah, in spite of the slow GPA, this clearly has no bearing on how well Judith does in the lab? Well, and I, I think the, the very first point you made is, is helpful and, and kind of adds more weight to the upcoming recommendation, which is you said the, the proximity to the grade is what makes it important. So if Judith gets another year or two of experience outside of uh, her college uh, tenure, then they would place less weight on that GPA and she'd have a better chance of showing, look at this research I did, who cares what my GPA was? Uh, which is actually how I think most of the world views GPA, but I, I could be wrong. The last piece that she mentions, and I don't think we've talked about this before, she says she has two different high school research experiences. Um, they were at colleges, of course, not at the high school, but she's not sure if they have the same weight or if she should even include them in the application. Do Do you see people listing as a high school senior or junior, I did this research? I mean, you don't see it all the time just because... I think there are limited opportunities for high schoolers to, to actually get research, real research experience. But by all means, any experience you have doing research, even if it was as early as high school, you should include. Now, if that's the only experience you have, and then you've gone all the way through college, and now you're applying to grad school, and that was the last time you set foot in a lab, um, you know that's probably not going to cut it. But I think what it does indicate is it shows that you have had this interest in research and in science for a long time, and that that's sort of a longstanding interest that you have. And so I think for those reasons, and absolutely. And took pains to make it real, to, to actually go do yep, it. For sure, for sure. She concludes, at this point, I'm not sure if I should apply to grad school this year. Uh, and her options were to either apply to grad school, to apply to one of the post programs that the NIH funds, like PrEP. I think you're familiar with that one, Josh. Mm-hmm or potentially finding a job as a lab technician for a year or two until she applies to grad school again. And so my sense is that options B and C are great. To, to do one of the post programs or to be a lab technician, Josh, do you agree with that? And is one of those two a better pathway to a graduate program? I think any of the options that are going to allow her to get additional or get some research experience, you know, help her identify, have a better view of what she wants to do, and that research is really the thing she wants to to devote her time to do, and also to provide another good reference that she can have uh, when the time comes if she decides to apply to grad school. Excellent, excellent. Well, we'll answer one more question, and best of luck to Judith. We're, we'll be excited to be in touch and to hear about how your experience goes, uh, whatever it is you happen to choose. The next question comes from Will in Tampa, 
And he writes, hey, Josh and Dan, I love the show so much, I have a question that might be good. It might not be. (laughs) In the past year, I recently graduated with a bachelor's in nursing and decided to jump straight back into the fire, and I'm currently a year one graduate student pursuing a PhD in nursing science. I have a job as a graduate assistant. However, I also decided to work part-time as a nurse in the hospital. I would be much happier only working as a graduate assistant and being able to dedicate more time to my science, but my problem is this. Would it make me a fraud to never have practiced directly in the area that I'm going to train others to be in someday? My goal is to be faculty at a research university with a large focus on research, but I imagine part of that will still include teaching undergraduates planning to work in the field. Does it matter that I am able to say, I put in my time, before moving on to the non-clinical area of the profession? My work as an inpatient nurse certainly does not translate to my research goals or career development. So Josh, if, if Will does not practice nursing, can Will teach nursing students? Yes. And, you know, one thing I want to unpack here with what Will said is Will is in a Ph.D. program in nursing science and talks about really wanting to focus time on and spending a lot of time on research in the lab, on scientific research. And it sounds like that's the goal. Um, You know, Will indicates wanting to be faculty at a research institution, focusing on research, maybe even running a lab. So I think a few things that are important to consider, even though Will is in a PhD in nursing science, you know, a PhD in nursing science is different than a nursing program training nurses. So one thing Will doesn't know is later on when he's applying for faculty positions, he may not end up in a nursing science department, right? So maybe he's doing research as a PhD student in nursing science, but maybe he's doing research on cancer or heart disease or who knows what, right? And and this is really common where, right. you know, outside of Will's specific degree, but broadly, you know, many graduate students are in a specific department and their PhD will be in a certain thing. But not always, even if they pursue a faculty academic position, do they end up later as faculty in that exact same thing. And so an example I I have is I remember working with one of our own faculty members who was faculty in our toxicology program. And so I was helping lead this this high school outreach program and um, this faculty member, this toxicologist came in and was talking to them about her job, what it's like to be a research professor and you know, being a professor of toxicology. And the story I remember her telling is that at the time she became a faculty member in toxicology, she had never actually had a toxicology course in her whole life. <laughs> wow. You know, it's just that her research interest, she was doing a certain type of research and that made her competitive and interesting for this interesting for them to hire for this job that happened to be in the toxicology program. Now she teaches toxicology in the toxicology program, and her research is related to toxicology, of course, but she herself had never had any formal training or coursework in toxicology, and now she's a professor of it and she's teaching it. So hopefully that is an example of the fact that, yeah, Will, you are, don't stress yourself out about that. Yeah, and I have some relevant experience, I think, in this realm as well. In graduate school, I was in the physiology program, and all of the professors in my department taught the medical students physiology class. Um, And in fact, as a graduate student, I led one of 
the uh, medical student sessions, they had these breakout groups where they had additional instruction and, and workshops and things like that. And so another graduate student and I led that for a few years, um, just one of these cohorts. And I think the the difference here that, and may, maybe medical school and nursing school are different, but the professors in the physiology department are teaching medical students the concepts, the basics of physiology. They get different clinical experience um, where they do rounds and they work with medical doctors and they do residencies to get that experience of what it's like to work in the hospital. But the basics they're getting from PhD researchers. And in most cases, the person teaching the, sec- the session, it wasn't even their research focus in every case. So my PI, we studied cytoskeleton. She was teaching, you know, aspects of hormone balance. And another researcher who studied cardiovascular system was teaching about kidneys. So as a, as a scientist, as a PhD researcher, you have a broad knowledge of science and, and how the body works and about how life works. And you can pass that on. Um, these day-to-day clinical experiences, they're probably going to get in a different place. Yeah, that's great advice. And also, doesn't that make you feel good, Dan, as a uh, an undergrad or medical student or nursing student, the person who's teaching your class, probably not an expert in that topic? <laughs> yeah, I don't think the medical students knew that the people teaching each of these sections was not, that was not their realm of research. But it also made me not want to go to the doctor anymore. Have you ever worked with medical <laughs> students, Josh? Hey, nothing but love for the medical students here, Dan. Okay. But good luck, Will. And uh, as cold as it is right now where I am, I wish I was in Tampa. All right, Josh. Well, let's close up the mailbag for this week. And uh, any parting thoughts or, or wisdom that you wanted to share? You know, just for for everyone listening, hearing these different questions that were coming from people who were at very different stages, whether they were graduating and transitioning into their career, whether they were trying to figure out whether they should apply to grad school at all, or kind of in the early stages where they're still finding their way and pursuing their interests. Keep on keeping on and be really self-aware and thinking a lot about who you are, what you want to do, and what is it about the things you're doing and the science that you're doing that excites you. And, and follow that. Don't be afraid to follow that. It's your career. You said this earlier, Dan. It's your career. So make sure you're paying attention to who you are and what you want to do as you make your choices. You're here. Well, Josh, we will see you next time. And please stay warm. All right, Dan. We'll see you next time and hope you're having a great holiday season so far. 